Psalm 34. I encourage you to bring a Bible if you have one. And, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles here. Um, there are, should be some in the, some in the foyer. If, uh, if there aren't any, just let me know and I will get you one. Um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 34 as we continue our series on the book of Psalms. And uh, Psalm 34 was another psalm that was written by David. So far, we've been looking at all, all psalms written by David. But this one was another one written by David. And, and sometimes it's just, you know, it says it's written by him, and then it goes on. But this one, it tells us specific circumstances in which he wrote. And uh, this was written in the midst of a time when David was running for his life from King Saul. King Saul was trying to kill him. And, uh, and so he, he fled in order to escape Saul and he ended up, um, and he was so desperate, he fled to um, enemy territory, basically. He fled to, uh, to live amongst the Philistines, who are the enemies of Israel. And, um, and the thing is, when you hide among the enemies of Israel, and you used to fight for Israel, and you were a famous warrior among Israel, the, the Philistine people started being like, isn't that David? Isn't that the guy who's like killed thousands of our people? And so he's in, he's in serious danger and so he pretends to be insane, and, uh, and he like, sits, talks about how he scratches doorposts and lets spit run down his beard in order to not, not seem like he's a threat. Um, but you can imagine, in a situation like that, he had to have been um, feeling incredibly alone um, and desperate and afraid, and, uh, and, and God rescued him out of all of that, and he escaped the Philistines with his life, and he writes this psalm in the midst of that, in the midst of a time where his, his faith and his relationship with God and his, his witnessing of what God had done and the goodness of God was not a theoretical thing. It was a very practical, real-life thing. And so he invites us as we read this and as people sing this throughout the ages to... Uh, to notice the real-life, practical goodness of God as well. So listen to God's word as I read from Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us, let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, 
and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeemed the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to pay attention right now to your word. Um, Father, if, uh, if my words get in the way, we pray that your spirit would move them out of the way, that you would help us to see what is true here, that we would help us to see you here. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and convict us and change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so who, who here likes soy sauce? Anybody like soy sauce? A lot of us like soy sauce, right? It's on the right things. Um, how, how would you like to, you know, to taste soy sauce poured over a bowl of vanilla ice cream? Does that sound good? Ketchup as well, maybe? Okay, um, what about maybe melted chocolate on cheese pizza? Does anybody think that sounds good? <laughs> Somebody mentions ketchup. How about popcorn and ketchup? That's probably... No? Now we're getting somewhere. As long as it's ketchup. As long as you put ketchup on it. Um, Oreos dipped in orange juice. Anybody try that before? No? I'm getting a lot of negative reactions. Um, strawberry, sour cream, and brown sugar. Maybe? I see some maybe, some takers. Um, <laughs> And then uh, last one, how about just a couple of pieces of, of white bread with peanut butter and pickles on it? <laughs> Take off the pickles. No, you have to have them together. That's the point. Um, all right, so there, there, were, there was some interest in maybe a couple of those things, uh, but the reality is, is none of us will really know if those actually taste good unless we taste them, right? Unless we actually put them in our mouths and leave it in your mouth and, you know, let it like sit on your tongue for a few seconds at least before you spit it out. Uh, the funny thing is, all those, all those combinations, um, there's a list on the internet of like surprising food combinations that actually taste incredible. And that's, that's, that's what all of those were, believe it or not. So see me afterwards, I'll give, you, I'll give you the list and you can try them later if you want, if you dare. But that's the reality, you will not know, you will not know if soy sauce and vanilla ice cream go good together, unless you actually pour the soy sauce over the ice cream and you take a bite. Is anybody willing to do it? Um, I, I think that there's absolutely a similar dynamic when it comes to um, finding out about if, if God is good or not. And that's exactly what David says here, right? In verse 8. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. David knew that God was good. David knew that God was good, but it's because he had actually experienced it. You know, he had tasted God's goodness in real life situations. I'm afraid that there are a lot of us here who maybe know that God is good in a theoretical way. Or we, you know, we, we hear, we read the Bible and it says that God is good. Or we come to church and we talk about how God is good. Or we sing a song and it says that God is good. And we maybe imagine that God is good. But how many of us have really tasted it? How many of us have, have really given ourselves to experiencing the goodness of God? And finding out the reality of his goodness in real life. 
um, this psalm, and this psalm, I think David gives us four different ways that we can find out about the goodness of God, four different ways that we can taste in God's goodness, but it requires action on our part. It requires us to, to actually approach these things with real effort and attention to actually put these things in our mouth and put them on our tongue and taste them, you know? Um, the first thing that David, the first way that David encourages us to taste God's goodness, I think, is through praise. If you just look at the very first three verses in the, in the psalm, what does David encourage us all to do over and over again? I will bless the Lord, right? His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Magnify the Lord with, the, with me. Let us exalt his name, right? Over and over again, he's like, praise God with me. Praise him. He, he helps us to fix our attention on who God is, to behold who he is. I mean, that's what praise is. That's what worship is. It's, it's, it's fixing our attention on God's greatness in a way that, that, that requires that we respond to him. It's actually giving our, our attention. It's actually engaging with who he is. There are a few things that are more satisfying in life than, than to behold something that is great or magnificent, right? I mean, when we, when we go visit some place, you know, some great place in creation like the, like the Grand Canyon or uh, we go to Niagara, Niagara Falls or we're driving through a place where there's these like huge mountainous, this mountainous like uh, skyline, right? It like demands that we respond and be like, wow, that's amazing, right? And we look at it and we behold it. That's what worship is. It's beholding things that are great and magnificent and beautiful. And that's what David says. If, if you want to taste that God is good, you actually have to give yourself to beholding God. Um, and that means as we come to church on Sunday morning, like, like coming with an expectation that I'm actually going to, to like give myself to this. I'm, I'm not just coming to, to be a spectator. I'm not just coming to kind of check something off the box. I'm actually going to engage with the, the words that we sing. You know, there's, we, we just sang several songs that have all sorts of incredibly good things in them, good news in them, right? How much are you actually interacting with the truths that you're singing about? How much are you actually thinking about, oh, I'm singing this line, and, and how does it impact how I'm living my life? how I'm responding to a, a crisis in my life, something that's difficult, a challenge, right? How much are we actually engaging with these things that are true, that we're singing about? How much are we actually engaging when somebody prays up front? Are we just kind of like sitting there just counting on this person to pray for us? Or are we actually engaging with the things that they're praying for and praying alongside them and talking to God, right? How much are you, as, as you sit here, I know sometimes I might go a little long, I apologize. But, you know, as, as we sit here and, and, and as I, I or somebody else is talking about God's word, there is something incredibly important happening here. And we have an opportunity to respond to God speaking right now. Are you listening to him and engaging with him and beholding who he says he is here? But David reminds us to do this well, to really taste and see that God is good as we praise him. Um, we have to do a couple things. One is we need to work at it all the time. We have to work at it all the time, right? He says, 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. This is something that I'm going to commit to, that I'm doing always. It's not something that he just does when he goes to the temple or, or to the, you know, to, when he gathers with, the, gathers with God's people on, on the Sabbath. It's, this isn't something that we're supposed to just do on Sunday mornings. It's supposed to be something that, that we, that's a way of life for us, a habit that we develop to pay attention to the greatness of God in all circumstances of our life. You know, when I wake up and I'm all kind of groggy and tired, that's the moment when it's that God is inviting me to behold him. Um, as I'm exercising, as I'm going to work, as I'm sitting around the dinner table with family members or friends, it's, it's it, God calls us to, to respond to him at all times, to behold him at all times, to pay attention to him at all times and consider how great he is the more we get in the habit of, of, of responding to him, of, of trying to look for him in all of life, the more opportunity we're going to have to taste, to actually taste that he is good, to see that he is good. And David also emphasizes the importance of praising God with others. He says in verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, right? Let us exalt his name together. This is vital. That's why Sunday mornings are so important. It's, 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 it's crucial that we make this a priority because we come, we come together and we do this not by ourselves, but we're, we're, we have other people sitting, sitting next to us, standing next to us. Just taking the example of singing together, you know? That's one thing you can't do alone is, is sing corporately, <laughs> right? My grandfather used to say that a lot. But, it, but it's important as we come and as we sing, it's an opportunity to, to hear other people Echoing back the same things that we are singing and thinking about and say and, and believing. And it affirms that for us. It encourages us to believe it. It encourages us to actually taste and see when, we, when we're surrounded by others. You know, um, there are some things when we, when, we, when we see something that is great, when we witness something that is incredible, what is, what is our natural inclination? Is we want to share it with somebody. Don't we? If you take a, a picture of something really cool, don't you like, love to share that picture with other people? And show them, or if you see something on social media, and don't you want to just share that and post that so other people see this incredibly amazing video, right? We have this inclination on, in us that, that we experience the greatness of this thing more as we share it. And that's why as we share the greatness of God, as we respond to him, as we share praise and worshiping him, it enables us to taste his goodness more and more to see that he is good, to see that he is great, and to real, realize that it's, 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 he's actually real. His greatness is real. And so David's, David encourages us to taste God's goodness through praise, and, and he also reminds us that God's goodness is tasted in prayer. If you look at verses 4 to 7, in verses 4 to 7, I think it's all about, all about prayer. He, sa he starts off, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me, right? He delivered me from all my fears. That's a verse about prayer. He's seeking God, and God answers him. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Again, I would say that that describes prayer. When we pray, we're looking to God in expectation. And, and, and he says, their faces shall never be ashamed. In other words, we will never be disappointed as we look to God, as we cry out to God, as we pray to God. We won't be disappointed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him 
out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. These verses are encouraging us. David's saying, guys, look to God, cry out to God, seek God. I mean, the, the prayer is the most, maybe the most practical way that we can taste and see that God is good. You guys realize this. Real, regular, consistent prayer, and especially prayer for real life, practical things. I mean, that's, that's the challenge for us. I think for a lot of us, prayer is, we, we keep prayer kind of at a distance, you know? Um, we pray, you know, before meals, or we come to church and we pray, or we, you know, we say, like, when something big happens in life, maybe we pray, or somebody asks us to pray for something that's going on, we pray, but, but I think a lot of us, we, we don't pray for really practical, everyday things. And I think the reason is, I think a lot of us are, we're, we're cynical. We don't really believe. We're afraid that we might be disappointed. We are, we're afraid that if, if we look to God in prayer, that we might be ashamed. We might be disappointed. But the reality is, is it, as we pray for more and more things, that's when we have more and more opportunities to see God's answers and to, in very practical, real ways, see his goodness. Um, there's a great, I, I've mentioned this book before by Paul Miller called The Praying Life. Um, I encourage you to read it. It's a great book on, on just individual prayer, increasing your ability to pray and your love for prayer. And we might have a copy in the foyer. If there's one there, feel free to take it and read it. Um, but I, I'm not sure if it's in that book or if I heard him say this at a, at a seminar I heard him do once. But he told this this time when he went on vacation with his family. And his kids were really young at the time, and a relative had given his kids each like $20 to spend on a souvenir. And, uh, and you know, if, if you have little kids, you know, when you go on any kind of vacation, at least for our family, like the highlight of the vacation isn't like the place you go or the amazing things that you do. It's just the souvenir that they buy, the chance to shop for a souvenir, you know? And I'm like, come on. But, but so we, the, 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 the family gives the kids you know, $20 each to spend on a souvenir, and so they're all excited about buying a souvenir on vacation. The very first day they're on vacation, one of the kids loses their $20. Lost. They cannot find it. No matter how hard they look, they can't find it. And at the time, um, Paul Miller was talking about, like, he doesn't have very much money, so they, they didn't have money to give the kid to, like, buy something, and they're like, ah, oh, this, you know, this stinks so well. And, uh, and so he, the, Paul is always encouraging his family to pray about everything, and so his, his child says, you know, I'm, I'm going to pray that God gives me some money to buy a souvenir. And, and he's like, yeah, I know I want to encourage you guys to pray about everything, but that seems kind of like, I don't know if we should be praying for cash. Like, God's not just going to rain down <laughs> cash on us just so we can buy souvenirs, you know? Like, should I be, should I be okay with this? And, uh, and, and so he, he, like, his child, like, prays for, for money, <laughs> To get a souvenir that week, that uh, that week, and uh, and he's like, oh well, whatever. What can you do? And and the funny thing is, the very next day they're at the beach, and cash just washes up on the beach. <laughs> and and he's he's like, he couldn't believe it. He's like, I don't know, you know, I I don't know about the, like the precedence that this sets for our kids, you know, like. God doesn't just give you everything that you pray for, but I also, you know, he's like, but, but that was an incredible lesson in the fact that, you know, God loves to give good gifts, and we pray for so little. We ask for so little. Um, and I think one real 
very real practical ways that we can find out about the goodness of God is when we pray. When we pray for small things. When we pray for big things. When we pray for things that, you know, not only, I mean, yes, we need to be praying for those who are sick and those that we're worried about, but like real life circumstances, situations, things that we long for. We need to be praying about everything. And we need to be praying expectantly. You know, like when I, I mentioned that when we were going, going through Psalm 5, we need to have this, this uh, attitude towards prayer. When we pray, we need to pray and then look for what God's going to do. Because we are so easily, we, again, because of our cynicism, we, we pray and then we just forget about it. We're just, you know, satisfied with the fact that we prayed for something. But we need to pray and we need to look and see how is God going to answer this prayer. Um, like when, when I go to a restaurant that I love and I order a meal like that, that I'm, I've been really looking forward to and they put it in front of me and it, and it looks incredible and I'm hungry, what happens? My mouth waters. Has that ever happened to you? You're looking at something and you're, and you're hungry and it looks incredible. My mouth waters because I'm just, I can't wait to taste that thing. That's how we need to pray. We need to pray with, 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 with our mouths watering for what God is going to do. taste and see that God is good. We need to do that in our prayer lives. We need to do that as we praise him. And, and we also need to do it, it says you, you, you taste the goodness of God through patterned, patterned goodness, through the, a pattern of life that is lived out by doing good. Um, in verses 11 to 14, if you look at 11 to 14, he says this, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So he mentions the, the word good several times in this psalm. Um, the very first time he mentions it is in verse 8, right? The verse we, I, I first mentioned, O taste and see that the Lord is good. He, he describes God as being good, right? And then he says here in these verses, he says, Do you want to live life the way it's meant to be lived? Do you want a long life? Do you want to see many days? Do you want to see goodness? He says, this is what God is like. He is good. He says, do you want to see goodness? And then what does he say? He says, well, you need to look at your life and live your life in such a way. And, and how do you need to live it? Verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Do good. So I think what he's pointing out is that, that God is good and if we want to see his goodness, if we want to taste his goodness, what we need to do is we need to pattern our lives after his. We need to live in a way that reflects his goodness, that copies his goodness, okay? How do we, how do we where do we see the goodness of God lived out more, most practically? Well, we see it in the life of Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the goodness of God to us, to show us what the goodness of God actually looks like in, in everyday life, in relationships with people. He talks about keeping your tongue from evil, your lips speaking no deceit. You know, like, like he talks about the part of our goodness needs to be lived out in the way that we speak to people. How do you find out how to speak to people? Look at Jesus. How did he speak to people? He spoke with truth. He spoke with purpose. He spoke with compassion. He spoke with kindness, right? How do we know what it looks like to, to do good? Again, look at Jesus. Jesus gave of himself. He sacrificed his, his comfort. He sacrificed his time. He gave of himself his energy in order to, 
to care for people, in order to listen to people, in order to be with people. He sacrificed his reputation, right? He didn't care how much damage it did to him to spend time with the the outcasts of society and to, to show them that they were loved. He exhausted himself healing people. That's what doing good looks like. Jesus was absolutely other-centered. His entire life was about God and about other people. Do you want to taste the goodness of God? Then make it your life's ambition to make your life about other people. Make it your life's ambition to exhaust yourself serving others, finding out how others need help and helping them, being there for others, listening to others, speaking words of comfort and encouragement to others to the degree that we do good we will that's where we that where we will experience the goodness of god working through us we'll be able to see him working through us as we copy him we'll be able to see him doing things bearing fruit if we want to taste the goodness of god we need to make it our ambition to do good to speak good make our lives about others, no matter how much it might cost us, no matter, how, no matter how much it might cost us our comfort and our time, our agenda, our things. And so to taste the goodness of God, we need to make our life about doing good. And then lastly, I want to talk about pain for a few minutes. Um, and this one might be a little bit more difficult for us to grasp. If you, if you go to the last, maybe, I think it's nine verses or so, verses 15 through 22. Eight verses. That he says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. He, he starts comparing in these last several verses, he's comparing the life of the righteous and the life of those who do evil. Okay? The righteous are those who, who have who, are, who fear God, those who cry out to God, those who trust God. The evil, those who do evil are those who are living in, in defiance of God, those who are living, um, ignoring God, rebelling against God, not caring about God. He compares these two groups of people, and he points out that he, he, bring, he brings our attention to the future, in verse 16, when he says, you know, the, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth, right? So the future is bleak for those who aren't crying out to God and entrusting ourselves to God, who aren't seeking to taste the goodness of God, basically. The future is bleak. But then he continues on, and he says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their, all their troubles. He points out in verse 17 that, that the righteous... They're not those who never experience trouble. Those, those, they're go- you're going to experience trouble, but God's going to deliver us out of them. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He also points out that this is, again, the righteous, the people that God is near to, are those who, who have broken hearts. He, he points out that it, if you're righteous, it doesn't keep you, from, it doesn't protect you from having a broken heart. You're going to face things in life that break your heart, but God's going to be near you. And then in verse 19, it says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's kind of a bummer, right? David doesn't say, God's going to spare you from all afflictions. 
you're going to experience many afflictions. There's going to be a lot of pain. No matter how much you have tasted the goodness of God, you're going to still experience pain. But it says, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. God is going to be faithful. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And in the end, he says, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And so this is the thing I want to point out. Um, he points out that, that if you are righteous, not, not, when he talks about righteous, he's not talking about like being the perfect person. Like He's not talking about being perfectly obedient. He's talking about those who trust God, those who cry out to God, those who find comfort from God in the midst of our broken hearts. That's what makes you righteous those who draw near to God and trust in him. Um, God is committed to redeeming you. You are going to experience pain. You are going to experience affliction. You're going to experience trouble. But God will redeem you. Um, what does it mean to be redeemed? To redeem something is to win something that has been lost. To, to reclaim something that has been lost. To, to reclaim something for glory that has experienced shame. That's what it means to redeem something. I, when, when I was, I, my, my earliest memories of, of the idea of redemption come from the, the uh, arena of sports. When I used to watch football with my dad growing up, I remember, I, I don't know if my dad would often say it or the commentator on the, on the TV would often say, you know, a, a kicker might miss a field goal at the beginning of the game and then late in the game he'll have a chance to, to kick a field goal to win the game. And it's then that the announcer's like, he has a chance to redeem himself, right? He can make up for everything that had gone wrong. I mean, we, we saw this last Sunday in the Super Bowl. Sorry if it's a sensitive subject. <laughs> Brian Kim, wherever you are, sorry. But like Patrick Mahomes, like early in the game, he, he fumbles the ball, right? And the Eagles return it for a touchdown. And you're like, oh man, that's awful. Um, but what happens? Later in the game, he redeemed himself by throwing multiple touchdowns and, and, and winning the game. And, and nobody remembers, really, that fumble. Everybody remembers the glory, the win. And this is what I think we're, David is encouraging us to see, that, that we will, if, if we have trusted in God and, and we are the righteous who God is committed to, we are going to experience pain. But God is going to redeem us. He's going to, to make up for all of the pain that we experience now. And in the future, we will only experience glory. We will only experience joy. All of that joy will completely outweigh all of the pain that we experience now. And in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will only be, be preoccupied with that joy. Um, I, I think... This is what we see in the life of Jesus, right? This is what we see in the life of Jesus. It's, it's interesting. Um, we were talking yesterday uh, in, in men's Bible study, you know. Uh, how do we know? How, how, come, how come there are so many, uh, somebody brought up, how come there are so many Jewish people who don't believe, they have the Old Testament, but they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that they're still waiting for Jesus to come? And, and uh, uh, I mean, one of the answers to that is that, that there's all sorts of clues throughout the entire Old Testament. There's hundreds of clues that point to this person who had come, that Jesus fulfills. And here's one little tiny one. By itself, it seems like nothing. But 
when you add it to the mountain of other clues, and you say, oh, Jesus fulfills all of these. You know, it's, it says in verse 20 um, that God keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And in John 19, John points out that this is actually fulfilled in the person of Jesus, because as he was dying on the cross, they, they didn't break his legs, which they often would do when somebody was crucified. And uh, this is just one little tiny little clue that points to Jesus being the fulfiller of all of the pro promises in the Old Testament. Um, by itself, it's nothing, but, but together, together, it's like all of these clues add up to this person. And this clue points us to what? It points us to Jesus's affliction and pain and defeat, right? His death on the cross. But we know, looking back on the story, what happened? What happened? Jesus didn't stay dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Death was swallowed up. Swallowed up by life. By the author of life. Jesus was redeemed himself, in a sense, right? Everything looked like it was lost, and yet, three days later, he was alive. And he now reigns and rules over all things. Um, in Hebrews 12, it talks about how Jesus, you know, endured the suffering of the cross. Why? Because of the joy that was ahead of him. That enabled to endure the cross. That enabled him to, to understand that, that the cross wasn't the end, but joy and glory was the end. And that's, I think, an encouragement for us. God promises that he will redeem every single one of his children. This is talking about the fact that, yeah, we, we have all sinned, and because Jesus died for us, we will not be condemned, and he redeems us from our sin, but I also believe that he will redeem us from all of the pain that we experience in this life. And there will come a day when Jesus returns, and all we can think about is the joy and the glory. And so as you experience pain right now, it's an opportunity to taste and see that God is good. Your pain right now, no matter what it is, it's a reminder that something greater is coming. So don't miss that in the midst of the things that you're suffering. And so uh, I'm just going to finish real quick. I'm sorry, I'm kind of going long here, but uh, we need, to, he, he urges us, taste and see. Guys, it's so easy. We can come to church without tasting. We can live our lives and read our Bibles and, and know all these things without really tasting that God is good. We need to actually give ourselves to it. Commit to it. The gospel, to commit to Jesus and his grace and all that he's done for us. One of our kids, there was one time throughout all of the, of the kids that we've had, you know, they, they've all had issues with not wanting to eat things and, you know, there's always this battle, you know, at least taste it, at least taste it. And it's usually not something that's that incredible. So I, I kind of empathize with the kids you know, but, but there have been, there's one time we, we made monkey bread. Anybody eat monkey bread here? It's just bread and sugar and more sugar and more sugar, different kinds of sugar mixed together and melted. It's just, I mean, who wouldn't like that? It's good. If you don't think monkey bread is good, then talk to me afterwards. <laughs> we'll fight about it. But like one of our kids, like, he wouldn't taste it. He's like, no, I don't want any. But it's going to be so good. You have to just taste a tiny little bit. You're going to love it. You love sugar. <laughs> nope, not going to do it. And to this day, you know, one of our kids doesn't eat monkey bread because he's unwilling to taste it. 
That is a tragedy. <laughs> you guys, honestly, it's a tragedy that a lot of us are sitting here and we're not willing to taste the goodness of God because we're not willing to give ourselves to praying. We're not willing to give ourselves to living in sacrificial ways that, because we're so self-centered. We're not willing to give ourselves to, to praising him in every circumstance in life. And that pain that we experience, it, it tends to drive us away from God sometimes rather than, than towards him and his promises. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You won't be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to taste, to taste all that you are, even today, to just do one thing differently that we might taste your goodness.